The previous church where I served as pastor is in Buffalo, New York. It was a smaller congregation um, in the heart of the city, and it had an office there, much like the office we have here at Reformation. And in that office, there was a paper cutter. You know, these big ones. We have one in our office here, too. There's big wooden paper cutters with the huge arm that's got the blade on it that you lift up and cut down. All right. But here was the problem. That that paper cutter at this church in Buffalo, New York, it it was old. And and I mean really, really old. It was made of some sort of extremely heavy metal and wood combination. And it might have been as old as the church building itself, which was, in fact, 100 years old. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it had been there a long time. And as these things get older, a problem starts to arise. You see, the paper cutter didn't really cut the paper in a straight line anymore. And I remember after a particularly frustrating week, I went into the office because I had to cut something for a ministry that I was doing there, and I put the paper on the special tray, and I line it all up perfectly, and I pull the arm blade down, and then I look at it, and it's very clear that the top is shorter than the bottom. And after this frustrating week, I looked at the paper cutter, and I said out loud, you have one job paper cutter had one job and it couldn't even do that right and it was making me crazy but I think and I wonder that if sometimes Jesus looks at us or looks at the church and says you've got one job and you're kind of blowing it so I'd like to talk with you this morning about the one job that we as a church have to do, we as Christians have to do, this theme of one job, it actually appears in our text this morning as well. We will be looking at Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, and I've titled this sermon, One Job. Please pray with me. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Send your living word to walk amongst us now, to challenge our assumptions, to set our hearts ablaze, and to make us whole again. Amen. Open up those Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. This is quite a ways into Luke's gospel, and Jesus has already, we've told, we're told earlier, Jesus has already set his sights on Jerusalem. He is headed towards that holy city, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens along the way, but we know that that is the space he's in, moving towards Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 31, we read this. <clears throat> oh, and please, and I should have invited you. Why don't we stand as the gospel is read? This is a way that we rise in spirit and truth, a way to show respect for the words that have been prepared for us that God longs for us to hear this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen. I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside 
of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the good news, friends. It's the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there are some details within this scripture passage that I want to make sure we understand because it changes a lot about what you will hear. It seems on the surface that this is a passage about Jesus having to run from King Herod, right? He's told in the beginning there that Herod is out to get him, and so he better stop what he's doing and get in line, otherwise he's going to meet an untimely end. But here's the thing. This passage actually is not at all about Jesus' battle with Herod. This is about Jesus' battle with Pharisees. Let, let me break it down for you. Notice that it is the Pharisees who come to Jesus and say, hey, you better cut it out because Herod is going to kill you. And it seems on the surface that they're just looking out for their buddy Jesus. They're just being a good friend in this moment. But here's the thing. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders within the Jewish community. They, they were a small uh, set-apart sect, if you will, of religious leaders in that Jewish community, they would have had no idea what King Herod was up to. In the same way, right? I'm I'm just a pastor of a Lutheran church in Philadelphia. I have no idea what Donald Trump is going to do next for a number of reasons. It's the same dynamic, though. Just as I do not have access to the president, there's no way that a Pharisee would have had access to King Herod. So then why in the world are the Pharisees telling Jesus to beware that Herod's out to get him? Well, simply because the Pharisees were jealous. That's right. Jesus was creating quite a following for himself. He was performing miracles and casting out demons and doing some really good teaching. And people were starting to listen. And the Pharisees didn't like it. They used to be the spiritual leaders in the community. They used to be the ones that people would go to with their questions, that they would go to to learn more about God and the scriptures. And suddenly Jesus is taking all the fame. Jesus is getting all the attention and they don't like it one bit. And so they tell Jesus, hey, you know, you better stop doing what you're doing because maybe Herod will get you or something. They had no idea if that was true, but they hoped that such a threat would put a stop to Jesus' teaching and thus Jesus' popularity. Oh, but Jesus, he's a clever one, isn't he? He sees right through it. He says, go tell that fox, Herod. Go tell that fox. Because Jesus knows that these Pharisees aren't going to relay any of his messages back up the line to King Herod. King Herod will never hear about this Jesus who called him a fox. Jesus is calling out, The craftiness of the Pharisees. I see what you're doing there, Pharisees, trying to put a stop to my mission and ministry because you're jealous. Well, go tell that fox that I still have work to do, that I'm going to keep casting out demons and healing the sick. And on the third day, I finish my work, Jesus says. Now, 
Here's what we can learn from this little squabble between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I have something to, to tell us this morning. This is a hard truth to wrap our minds around. So often, when there's someone in the scriptures who gets uh, corrected by Jesus, we need to realize that those characters are us. We're very rarely the heroes of the scripture stories, church. Whenever there's someone who's making a mistake, a disciple who's stepping out of line, a Pharisee who's making a bad prediction, you need to try and put yourself in their shoes and hear how Jesus corrects you and them. You see, the Pharisees were so focused on the way they wanted things to go. The Pharisees had one job. And that was to help people grow in their walk with God, to open and reveal the scriptures to them. That was the one job that the Pharisees had, and Jesus was helping them do that. Jesus was helping this goal be accomplished with his teaching and his healing. Jesus was bringing people closer to God, and the Pharisees should have embraced it. But the Pharisees were so caught up in their own ego, their own wants and desires, that they couldn't even see the ways that Jesus was on their side. And church, this is a reminder for each and every one of us about the ways that our own ego, our own self-centeredness, our own opinions can get in the way of spiritual growth in others. Think about it with me. Think about it. How often have we seen in churches, maybe not this church, no, heavens forbid, not this church, but other churches out there, right? where people will become so set on seeing worship look one way that they don't make room for their neighbor. We become so self-centered on the way that we want it, the way we've always done it, the way that it should be. And yet, there are multiple ways to worship the Lord. There are multiple ways to connect with God. Maybe you like a choir and drums, or maybe you like sitting quietly in a room by yourself. It's a matter of preference, church. And if we can't make room for the other, then we're missing our one job. But there's more in this passage that Jesus wants to critique and set right as well. Because you'll notice that it starts off with Jesus talking about the Pharisees, but then he has this whole lament over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have a reputation for kind of, you know, killing prophets. Now, Jerusalem was supposed to be the holy city of the day. It was the place where the temple was. And there was nothing more sacred than having the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord in his holy temple. It was the place where heaven and earth sort of overlapped. And yet, it was also the city where prophets went to die. Jerusalem, you had one job. To be the spiritual center of the world, that was your one job, and instead you are a city of bloodshed and conflict. You see, a lot of the times I think that our church looks like Jerusalem in this way as well. Churches in general are supposed to be spiritual centers of the community, and yet how often do they end up being sources of conflict, places of division? The church has one job, to help people grow in their walk of faith. And yet, how often does the church waste all of its time on thousands of other squabbles? But here's the thing. I know I've laid on a lot of 
heavy information for us. And it's good to state the problem. I've always been told, right? State your problem first in your thesis. But there's also some good news in here. Because we need to look at the way that Jesus responds to all of these critiques he's laying out. Even though the Pharisees were trying to trap him. Even though Jerusalem was a murderous city. Even though we can be selfish and self-centered, even though our churches can be divided and conflicted, Jesus knows that he has one job. And his job is to gather it all together under his wings and his love. Jesus knows that Jerusalem is a murderous city, and yet he still will not stop his mission of heading there. Even after he states these things, Jesus continues on his way towards Jerusalem. And he knows that that will be the place where his work is finished, where he is nailed to a cross and crucified in front of everyone. And yet he still goes. Even though we make mistakes, even though we can focus only on ourselves and our own opinions, even though our churches can miss the mark and be houses divided, Jesus still does not tire of extending love and grace to us and to our communities and to the world. Now, here's the thing that we need to be careful about. In Lutheran theology, people will often get a little nervous if you start saying you've got one job to do. And that's for good reason. The the Lutheran church does a beautiful job of emphasizing God's grace. It is never about what we do. It's always about what God does for us. We cannot climb the ladder up to God. God always comes down the ladder to be with us, to love us, to forgive us. It's not about earning your way or your place. But I still think that it's okay for us to recognize our one job. And our one job is this, church, to simply believe and trust in the love of God. Jesus is offering all these critiques and all we have to do is to believe that his love is stronger and more full than any of the ways we mess it up. (laughs) Jesus is pointing out all the ways we fall short and all we have to do is recognize that he wants nothing more than for us to be grounded in his love. You know, or hopefully you've seen on your bulletin covers that our theme for 2019 is no love and show love. A year of spiritual growth. No love and show love. But during the season of Lent, I just want to focus on that first half. No love. Because that's where it all begins. When we know the love of God in our life, it changes everything. When you know it deep within your soul, deep within your bones, how much God cares about you and loves you, that suddenly makes a lot of other things irrelevant. Suddenly you're not as concerned about getting your way exactly right because you know that the love of God is so much bigger than matters of preference. Suddenly the love of God is so present and full and a part of who you are that a little squabble or a difference of opinion doesn't become a reason to walk away from the relationship. God's love is able to bring us all together when we know it deep within our bones. I had a friend I have a friend who is an incredibly faithful Christian. And he was the guy who was just so involved in, in ministry in college. And this is a favorite story. After college, he went out and, and started visiting a church. And after just three weeks of attending this church, they said, hey, you should do the morning announcements. 
Because he was so energetic. He loved Jesus so much. He had so much enthusiasm that they're like, you know what? We we need to put you in front of a crowd to share that energy with others. And and so he was the type of person, too, who always brought God into the conversations in such a natural way. You, You know the type. It was so clear that he loved the Lord and that God was actively a part of his life. And shortly after we both graduated from college, his dad passed away. He was 23 years old, and that's a really early age to lose your father. Um, And he was very close with his father, and truth be told, his father was a big reason why faith was such a large part of his life. And so I remember going to the funeral and sitting through it and then checking in with him afterwards and saying, like, hey, how are you doing about all this? And, you know, he said to me, he's like, Nate, I'm okay. In fact, I'm more than okay because I know that my dad is with Jesus now. And not only that, I know that as much as my dad loved me, God loves me even more. And so I'm going to be okay because even though I don't have my dad, I will never lose God. He knew the love of God so deeply in his life, so deeply in his bones, that even the loss of his father could not shake him. I'm not saying that this will be the case for all of us. Any sort of loss in your life, we all handle in our own unique and different ways. But what I am saying is that when you know the love of God so deeply, it creates an unshakable, unmovable force in the center of your life, and nothing will be able to sway you. No matter how dark the days may seem, no matter how crazy things might get, no matter how stressed out you might feel, when the love of God is the grounding point in your life, you cannot be moved. Reformation, we've got one job, and it's real simple. Know that you are loved. Know it and learn it and remind yourself of it again and again and again. Never forget how much God loves you and let that be the cornerstone of your life. And everything else will fall into place after that. We've got one job and it's quite simple. Know that you are loved. Amen.